Good morning. Hey. It's like an Easter hangover. You guys are all just last week was up, and now you're trying to get back. All right. It's all right. Hey, if you're new, uh, please fill out the Connect card on your seat. There's also a QR code for you to scan to let you know the events coming up this summer and in the fall. So we just want to keep you in the loop. There's a lot of things going on. Uh, so please use that to your advantage. If you filled the Connect card, give it to us on your way out. We'd love to give you a gift in return. Uh, a few things before we jump into the word. The first is this summer, if you would like to be an intern and spend 10 weeks with us, just learning ministry, learning about the Lord, having a good time, uh, we would love to have you join us. Also, if you would like to host an intern, and so if you have a home and have an extra room for the next 10 weeks in the summer and can handle a slobby intern for some spiritual progress, you know, like uh, make the trade-off. Uh, but our interns are actually pretty clean, right? They're good kids. So uh, please uh, let us know if you can host an intern just for 10 weeks, just to open up your home. Uh, leadership development is a team effort. And so this is very important. If we're going to reach more people or plant other churches or really do anything, you have to develop leaders. This is basic. Okay? Everybody knows this in life. The biggest question anytime we want to do anything is, is there a leader for that? That's the question. If there's a leader, then sure, we can do it. If not, then no, we can't do it. So uh, this is how the world works. You guys know that. And so we want to raise up more leaders for Jesus so we can get more things done for Jesus. Amen. We, this has to be a team effort, all right? So this is one of the things I spend a lot of time doing. Uh, but if you can host an intern, that helps us develop leaders so that we can raise up people and hopefully impact a generation for Jesus. So uh, it's quite significant to host an intern for 10 weeks. So if you can do that, uh, let Taylor or Jess know. You can email them at Taylor or Jess at wearecelight.org. The next thing is next Sunday starts a seven-day fast to prepare for Immerse, which is on May 7th. So uh, many of you have been around long enough know three times a year we do something called Immerse to kick off a new season, uh, which is a 9 to 9 all-day prayer and worship event. And so come at any point in time during that 9 to 9. We would love to have you. Uh, we really believe, we say it, but we also want to back it up with the rhythms of our schedule that we believe that nothing spiritually significant happens apart from prayer. And if we want the Lord to do something significant this summer, then we got to pray to kick off the summer. Like, we really believe this. Uh, and not only do we need to pray for the world, but we need to pray for ourselves. We need to become more like Jesus. And so this isn't like, oh, it's a nice thing, Christians come and pray. No, like, we believe, and the Bible would say, this is life or death for a ministry. The church goes as its prayer life goes, not as its preaching ministry goes. So the church goes as the people who pray. And this is significant. So join us at any point. It's literally 12 hours. You can come in the middle, in the beginning, in the end. Uh, we, we eat together from 6 to 7 to break the fast, and then we have a rowdy prayer uh, worship service from 7 to 9. Uh, please make it in your schedule to go. On Sunday, I will give you a journal for you to use for those seven days. So I just want you to mentally prepare yourself for when Sunday comes uh, to be ready to commit to a seven-day fast of any kind, as we've discussed over and over again, like we do during our 21 days, uh, to prepare your heart to be ready for that time of immerse so that we can really dive in and be connected to the Lord. Uh, and so that's what's coming up that you guys need to be aware of and, and mentally ready for. So today we're back in 1 Thessalonians 4. So go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go. We're excited to hear from the Lord. I'm not sure if you're going to be screaming, let's go, once we dive into this topic today. Uh, but hopefully the Lord works in your heart and your life. As we talked about before Easter, we took two weeks off for Easter. We've been working through 1 Thessalonians uh, as a book. We stopped in chapter 4. 
And instead of me preaching four sermons in one sermon, which would not be good for you, uh, it's a preacher no-no, I, I decided to stretch this chapter out longer than we had planned. Uh, there's so much we learn about God's will for our life. And so two, three weeks ago, we preached about God's will for your life as holiness. Uh, and that's a very important message for you to understand the next four or five weeks. So if you missed that, please check that out. Uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to discuss God's will for you in regards to sex, relationships, work, salvation, and lifestyle. So all the things that you think about and live by, uh, we're going to discuss what does God want and what is his will for you in those particular areas of your life. So starting in verse 3, we're going to look at five verses today, 3 through 8, to discuss this particular topic in terms of God's will for sex. Verse 3, he says, For this is God's will, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and as we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so we'll stop there. Like I said, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this is very important. The will of God for your life is holiness. Therefore, the will of God is more about who you are than where you are. More about who you're becoming than what you're doing. And like I said, we spend 90% of our time talking about and wondering where should I go and what should I do. And that should be 10% of your time. And you should spend the majority of your time wondering about who am I becoming? Who am I? God's will for your life is more about who you are than where you are. His main concern is your holiness. And you can be holy as a CEO or working at McDonald's or cutting grass or working, living in Florida or Africa. It really doesn't matter. God's will for you is to be holy. And now we center our thoughts on that. And as we talk about holiness, the very first thing he brings up here is sexual purity. So obviously sexual purity isn't the only aspect of holiness, but it's a big one, and he puts it first. He puts it first. He says, well, God's will for you is to be holy and being holy in the way that you would be sexually pure, that your sexuality would be aligned with God's desires, that everything you think and act in regards to your sexual life would be holy as an offering unto the Lord. This is God's design for this particular area of your life. I want you to understand as well as we discuss something so sensitive, something so prevalent, uh, that when he was writing this 2,000 years ago, uh, sexual purity and the idea of sexual restraint was a non-factor in the society that he lived in. You think it's bad now. Let me give you some examples. <clears throat> uh, legally, so brothels were legalized so that emperors could fund and build their own temples, right? So imagine if Joe Biden got up and said, I'm going to legalize prostitution so I can build a temple to myself. He'd say, wow, that's, you've taken that really far. You know, this is, whoa, that's, you know, most people would be like, oh, that's a little much. Uh, this is what was happening back then. Let me give you another example. Uh, the expectation for men, this is the normal, just a normal guy uh, was expected to have a wife, a mistress, and a concubine. This was normal. It wasn't like weird. It was like, that's the expectation. As you grow up and become a man, you should have a wife, a mistress, and a concubine. So when the gospel and the good news of Jesus comes in to a place like this in Thessalonica, one of the greatest things that needs to begin to adjust is people's view on sexuality. 
so that people would begin to live like Jesus. So if you think it's bad now, really it's been bad ever since human beings have existed. And we just have more access to it now than maybe people have had before. But I want you to notice, therefore, that it's a timely word for them. It's a timely word for us. God's instruction on this matter has always been and will always be appropriate to every culture, to every generation, to all people in all places at all times. And this is important for us today. I also want to caveat a couple things as we dive into this. Uh, This is clearly a sensitive topic. Uh, it's not like the funnest one. You don't wake up and think, I'm going to preach on this today. You know, really get them. You know, like this isn't, this, that's not how it, how it feels. I have been really concerned this week to address this. Number one is God would want me to, uh, but to also do it with care, uh, to do it with great sensitivity and authority. You know, you want to bring both things to, to bear. So there's two realities at play. First, I want you to understand that obedience in this area is very serious to God. And we ought to receive teaching on it with the greatest earnestness and with a wholehearted desire to pursue God's plan. This is serious, and the culture would tell you it's not. And so I just want to press in to say, this is a very serious matter. But the second reality is that God loves you very much. And the cross is sufficient to pay for all of your sins. Not a single one of you is too far gone and your choices too unredeemable for God. So the reality is for all of us that we should experience conviction, sorrow, and repentance because of our sin, and then at the same time be so happy and grateful for God's grace. And you gotta have balance to say this is serious. Oh, but God's grace is serious too. So I'm gonna take this seriously but I'm not gonna be paralyzed by my mistakes. I'm going to walk in God's love for me. And we need to be able to do both of these things. The problem we have with this topic is we either do, we either treat it too lightly because the culture does, it's not a big deal, what, is, what doesn't really matter, it's just your body. We treat it too lightly or we treat it so heavily without any grace. We say, well, you're scarlet letter, you know, it's over for you, this isn't. And we don't wanna do either one of those things. We want to do what the Bible tells us to do. So here's a phrase, I think, that kind of helps sum up that idea that really applies to all sin, is this. Sin is seriously damaging, and we should kill it. And God's grace is seriously amazing, and we should enjoy it. And this, I'm I'm going to say this word a lot, I'm calling us to maturity. A mature Christian and a person who's growing in maturity can handle these realities. To say, I think sin is serious, and it bothers me that I do certain things, and I will give my whole self to fighting against it. At the same time, I will not be paralyzed by my mistakes or shamed into being thinking less of myself than I should because God loves me. And so I will enjoy God's grace that covers my sin, and I will fight my sin because it nullifies my idea of grace. And a mature Christian and a mature church can speak on topics like this and discuss it with one another in our groups and handle both realities at the same time. We ought not to treat it lightly, and we ought not to be so heavy-handed and legalistic that there's no room for grace. And so I'm calling us to maturity. So as we work through this passage, uh, I have a little acronym for you that I think might be helpful. CARE. So we should treat our sexual lives with CARE, C-A-R-E. Control, abstain, remain, and enjoy. And this is not something I came up with. 
It's just the text summarized this way, okay? So I'm just trying to summarize the text for you. This isn't Nate's version of uh, sexuality. This is what God has to say, trying to summarize for you in a word that might stick. So care, control, abstain, remain, and enjoy. Uh, The first one, control. Look at verse 4. He says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, to control is to not give in to every desire that I have. The fact that I need control tells me that things can get out of control. To control is to be angry with you and not punch you in the face. That's control. And this applies to a million different realities in our lives that the world expects us to apply to a million different realities in our lives. But it also must apply to our sexual desires and actions. The Lord is calling us to control. Now, here's something you must understand. The world, so especially if you're here today, say, well, I'm not even a Christian, and obviously I disagree with everything you guys think about sex and all that. Here's something I want you to think through. Is that the world already realizes that there must be some level of control because of the damage sexual expression can cause. But the world's idea of control is felt safety. That's this general, that's the best limit the world can come up with. Safety, felt safety. But here's what I want you to understand. This is what happens in the world. The world pushes sexual freedom and a lack of restraints on your expression of your sexuality and then gets upset when people freely express their sexuality to the harm of someone else. You can't teach people to do whatever you want with your body and then be mad that there's rape culture on college campuses. You have to understand that how wicked that is comes within a world that has no restraints on your sexuality and on the way that you approach these things. So whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, there's an absolute understood need for control. There's a need for limits. There's a need for boundaries because this can easily get out of control. And I want you to understand that if you don't have God's reality and truth to provide the boundaries and the limits, which are obviously needed, then where are you getting them from? You're getting them from your feelings, what felt safety I'm just going to generalize, you know? And there's no real actual structure or limits by which I can live my life in a healthy way. And so I just want to throw that out there real quick to those of you who say, well, Christians and sex and all that, to bring you in with us a little bit and to help you understand the need for some teaching and instruction on this for the world's sake at all. And then hopefully I can help you understand why God's way is the best way. Here's something else that I think you need We talked about this last summer during our Instructions for Reconstruction series as we kind of navigated cultural issues. This truth is so important, and I'm probably going to use it the rest of my life. It's this, that real freedom requires limits. Okay? Real freedom requires limits. Boundaries and restrictions are the very things that create environments of freedom. So when you're taught or when the expression in the world is, Get rid of the restrictions so that you can live free. It's actually not going to work out that way. And it's the placement of restrictions that allows me to live in freedom. Let me give you some examples practically to help you think about this. For the first obvious one is laws. What do laws do? Laws exist to restrict our behavior so that we can what? Live freely. 
the effect of their restriction is a freedom in the society. So that as I'm walking down the road and you want to run me over, you might think twice about it because you don't want to go to jail, right? You can hate me, but you also hate jail. And so now you've been restricted and I can walk freely. And this applies a million times over to say the law brings restrictions unto freedom. So the ultimate goal of the law is not to restrict, but to free. You see, that's how laws in society works. That's one example. Another one is simple. You know a fish is only free within the compounds of, of water. A fish is free when it's within the boundary of water, and as soon as a fish wants to fly in the sky, it will die. The sky, though it may be more expansive than the ocean, is a place of death for a fish because it thrives and it needs the boundaries of water to exist. A fish finds its freedom within the boundaries of water. Another example that's personal to me in my life, I have six children. A net around a trampoline gives the freedom to do backflips without breaking your neck and dying, right? I, I, I am so surprised when I drive places and I just see random trampolines out with no net on them, I'm like, all of my kids would be dead without a question or paralyzed. One of those two options. I don't understand trampolines without nets. I'm like, I don't understand. It doesn't even make sense to me. So you can be mad that the net's there, but the reality is the net allows you to do things you wouldn't be able to do without it. Now I can freely jump and test certain crazy stunts because I know the net is there. I won't fall off. So it's the boundary and me living within the boundary that creates the freedom for me to do the things that I want to do within that boundary. Freedom requires limits. One final example, because this is such an important concept, because when you go out in the world, they're going to teach the opposite, even though everything about your experience says that's not true. You've never followed this desire for freedom to your own good, and you would testify to that. It's never worked out for me to do everything I ever wanted. That's a bad idea. And so freedom requires limits. Let me find out the final thing. Uh, so last week, my wife and I, my family, we were in uh, Crabtree Falls. Anybody been to Crabtree Falls? That's a cool spot. Uh, we went to a vacation in Virginia, I think. Crabtree Falls is in Virginia, I think. Is that right? Um, I don't remember. I did this even last service. I couldn't remember where it was. I forgot to look it up. But I was on vacation somewhere in the world and uh, with my family. And uh, this is how, man, I tell you, my life, wild. I don't remember nothing, okay? So... <laughs> Uh, I just, we all came back alive, and that was important to me, um, but we had fun. So we were there, and uh, we took this back road from the resort to Crabtree Falls. We, we looked it up in maps, but somehow, instead of taking a, the main road, the maps had chosen for us this really pre precocious back road that literally, you drive down a huge mountain, and the side of the cliff just falls, and there's no guardrails on the road. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding. Oh, there's no guardrails on the road. And there's n barely enough room for two cars. Barely. So when another car is coming, you have to decide which one of you is getting close to death and which one of you is going to. And I won every time because my van is a 15-passenger van. And I have more people in my car than you do. So the math of how many people die is important here in this moment, all right? So I'm not going to go that close. And it was, it was a really quite, quite the ride, you know, and there's anxiety rising in the car, you know, every time we see. I mean, this is non-exaggeration. The, the, to misstep and to go over the cliff is to die. There wasn't any other. It was just, see you later, bye, you know, and there was no guardrail at all. And, you know, my wife's there like, like, watch out, do this, do this, do this, you know? And I'm sitting there thinking, babe, 
I care about living just as much as you do. I don't know why you think I need to be like understanding the situation, you know? So every husband says yes and amen to the, the passenger driving wife who's giving all these instructions as if you don't want to drive well too, you know? And it's not my intention to just throw everyone off the cliff right now, you know? I'm not, I'm not texting, I'm not, come on. You know, pastors have these kind of moments too as well in their car with their family but everybody's like, it's just tense, you know, and I'm holding on to the wheel like this, like, you know, 10 and 4, baby, just like they teach you, or 10 and 2, whatever, I don't even know, but, you know, I'm holding on like you're supposed to hold on, okay? I'm not doing this, you know, lay it back, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm locked in, I'm paying super, super attention, you know, the whole way down. Now, the lack of the guardrail did not give me freedom. The lack of the boundary was the very thing that created fear and anxiety in my life. And I wonder how many of you are living out of fear and anxiety because you're trying to live without boundaries. You thought not having boundaries would give me freedom and confidence. But what happened is it gave you fear and anxiety because you need boundaries to thrive. This is true about every human being on the face of the planet. And living in this world is just like driving down that mountain with the side of a cliff, you know? It's a crazy, precocious life. And this is what the Lord is revealing to us that I think is so important for your discipleship, for you to understand how the world works, for you to have a foundation as to why does God give restrictions and boundaries. It is unto your freedom. It is unto your life. And the majority of your anxiety, fear, and struggles are because you're trying to live outside of God's boundaries. You do not find freedom by ignoring God's boundaries. You find freedom by living within God's boundaries. And this is important for you as you address any topic, but particularly one as prevalent as sexual immorality. So we need some form of control. We all must agree upon this. As I said, then the question is, what limits and what control do I exercise over my body. Like we said, if I don't have God's design, then I have to pick something, a culture, a a leader, someone to tell me what to think and what to do. And that's not going to work out very well. But the question for us now is, well, how do I control my body? And many of you who struggle with this issue, you know, you're asking, how do I control my body? And here's something I want you to understand. We control our own body when we treat it not as our own, but God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 mentions this. I'll read the verse for you. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, namely, as we know, the blood of Jesus. So glorify God in your body. Here's the mistake we make because you're taught this time and time again throughout the world. Your body, your choice. And that applies to abortion, but it applies to a million other things too, particularly your sexual activity. And the Bible's gonna come along and say it's not your body. Did you make it? No. Do you sustain it? No, you don't. Then what form is it yours? You didn't make it, you don't sustain it, you don't own it. And the lie from the world that you and I have bought into is it's my body, my choice in regards to a million issues 
And the Bible is going to come along and it's going to confront that and say it's actually not your body. You are a steward of something that has been given to you. And your body is God's gift to you that you would be able to experience him and glorify him. Your body is an opportunity to bring glory to God. And it is something that has been given, and it is also something that can be taken away. The way you control your body is to treat it as not your own. Like I, when we went to that resort, we actually stayed in a house that somebody lent us. It wasn't, wasn't my house and so we're there for a few days, and can you, you can imagine with all my kids and whatnot, the level of intentionality and care, we make sure nothing breaks, every remote goes back in the room, you know, everything's clean. You, you operate by all the rules, and my standards in that house are way higher than the standards I have in my own house for how it should be maintained. Why? Because it's not my house. And I feel an obligation to take care of something somebody gave me as a gift. And the reason why you don't care for your body as you should is because you believe that it is yours in the first place. And the way you're going to gain motivation and power to exercise self-control over your body is to begin to understand that it is not my body, it is his. I am a steward of something God has been given to me, therefore I ought to exercise great intentionality and care as to how I use this body. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, I would ask you, like I said, you didn't make it, you don't sustain it, and it can be taken away from you before you'd like to. So how in the world would all those things add up to mean that you own your body? And I know that's hard to receive unless you believe in a God who loves you and cares for you and has given you this body as a gift to you. Then it's a wonderful blessing. It is not your own. And the reason why you may struggle to get over your sexual immorality and the habits that go with it is because you've treated your body as your own and you've relied on your own willpower to do it. As opposed to treating your body as God, as from God, and relying on God's power to do it. So this is what he says. Those who act in this way, in a sexually immoral way, he says, act as those who do not know God. Verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So to act out consistently in this way is to act as if you don't know God. The Bible teaches us this in many different forms. Romans 1 in particular would summarize it this way. Rejection of the knowledge of God leads to the rejection of the ways of God. So one of the reasons you might be struggling to be obedient is because you're not filling your mind and heart with truth about God's character. It's the proactive thing that you're not doing. As opposed to focusing on the thing that you're doing that you want to not do, you should be focusing on the thing you're not doing that you should do. The reason why you're powerless to overcome that temptation is because you're not growing in your knowledge of God. And if you were to increase in your knowledge of God, you would decrease in your temptation. This is what the Bible plays out. Not just knowledge facts, but knowledge relationships. Like, I increase in my love. I increase in my understanding of who God is. I increase in my trust of his character. And therefore, I don't get perfect, and I certainly continue to struggle in so many ways. But I mature in handling my temptations. 
And the reason why you are increasing in the action of the flesh is because you are not increasing in the knowledge of God. What you shouldn't do, you're focusing on as opposed to what you should do. And the power comes from the things that you do that the Lord honors. Fill your mind with truth and acknowledge the character of God and you will gain power over temptation. A way to say it is this, our life choices must rely on God's character, not our culture, customs, or conscience. Now this is very important, especially to those of you who have trouble with the Christian sex ethic. Where else are you going to get intel about how to live your life? That's an honest question. That's not a shot. That's an honest question. I mean, are you going to trust people that have been alive 50 years? The world's been around for a long time. And all of a sudden, these people get it right? When 100 years ago, the whole world disagreed? How does that make it? You do realize 100 years from now, everyone will disagree with everything the world believes right now. You, I hope you understand that. This just changes. So you're going to get it from your parents? Who got their information from who? You know, I, 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 I give the example of like, it's like playing a game, your morality, choosing your morality. is like getting a bunch of kids together to play a game that they don't know the rules of. And if you have five kids in a room, the rules will be dictated by who? The strongest personality. Not the one that's right, not the one with any wisdom, but the one with the most force. So it is with the, the world. The rules are dictated by those with the most force. Whether it's power like that or just influence, you know? So like as you see the world changing in their beliefs, it's because a wave of force has come to change the things we believe about sexuality. And then we adopt new rules because the force is stronger. And we're, being humans is like being a bunch of kids trying to play the game of life without the rules. And what we need is instructions from outside of ourselves. And I hope you see that as just logical, okay? I just want you to take a step, uh, hopefully a step towards Christianity, but I just want you to take a step to answer the question, where am I getting my intel for life from? Am I really deciding my morality by what the world thinks right now in 2022, what it didn't think in 2015 and it won't think in 2035? That's foolish, come on. So at least take a step with me. Say, okay. I am, the Christian sex ethic gets a lot of hate in the world, but you at least need to acknowledge the fact that you need intel from somewhere. And where you're getting it from right now is probably not reliable because how would they know? We need the Lord to tell us these things. And we're so proud and arrogant to think we could figure it out on our own. And it requires some humility to say God really is there. He knows best for my life. Our life choices must rely on God's character, not culture, customs, or conscience, which always changes. Okay, that's control. So treat your sex life with care. Control, and the second one is abstain. Look in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you dabble in sexual immorality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you practice a little sexual immorality. For this is the will of God, that you look at your computer once a month. instead of. For this is the will of God. No, 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 no. Hard to live out, but easy to understand. For this is the will of God that you abstain 
from sexual immorality. Well, what is sexual immorality? Well, the Bible would define it as any sexual activity outside of one man and one woman in marriage. Is that restrictive? Why, yes, it is. Why? So that you could be free. So that you could be blessed. So that you could not suffer certain things that many of us have suffered. This is God's design. You could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to do that right now. But the basic biblical principle of sexual immorality is any sexual activity or thought outside of the bounds of one woman and one man in marriage. So the Bible says to abstain from that. Now, here's the good news. Here's where you, get, you miss it. You, we, get, we get tripped up here. The Bible does not say to abstain from sex, which is generally how this is received. Like, sex is bad. Ooh, don't do that. You know, like, stay away, stay away, you know. Every youth group's like, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. That's the worst thing you could ever do, you know, which obviously it's important to say that. But we also need to understand God's good design here. He is not telling you to abstain from sex. He's telling you to abstain from sexual immorality. Here's the deal. The goal is not to destroy a good thing, but to guard it. You think God's trying to kill your joy and destroy your sex life by not allowing you to act in those things until you're married. And God is not calling you to destroy it. He's calling you to guard it. The teaching in the Bible doesn't teach us to destroy sex. It teaches us to guard it because it's something beautiful and precious. And obviously that makes sense. It's something that should be guarded. So the Bible has a lot to say about sex in its rightful place. And it's not calling you to abstain from sex, but sexual immorality, which is obviously difficult to do in light of the hookup culture and everything that's going on. We dabble here, we dabble there, and we are deceived into thinking that there is no consequences because it's just a little bit. And I just want you to know that it is killing your soul. And as we said before, you take that seriously and you kill it, but also God's grace is sufficient. So walk forward. Don't be paralyzed by shame. Move forward in the grace of God. Now, you must also remember this. God loves you and cares more about your pleasure than you do. Okay? This is very important. So when God tells you to abstain, he's telling you don't drive off the cliff, you know? Don't touch the fire. Like, he's telling you to abstain because he doesn't want you to get hurt. Listen to me, especially you Christians. If you believe that he loved you enough to die for you, then you ought to apply that same belief to every commandment he gives you. Why would you believe that God loved you enough to die for you and then think he gives you a commandment to restrict you because he doesn't want what's best for you? That's wild. So now you have to start at the cross and say, wow, God loves me that much? Then everything else he must say must be aligned with that. If he died for my good, then he gives me a commandment for my good. God's not schizophrenic. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't have two characters. So start at the cross and say, God loves me very much. And then move forward to his commandments and say, God loves me very much. Therefore, I ought to obey and consider this. Let me tell you a benefit of purity is this. I tell this to couples all the time. Is purity brings clarity. It is impurity that makes things blurry in your life. Purity is a blessing, not a burden. Now, if you view this hike, so this is the limit. You say, where's the limit? Abstaining, that's the limit, you know. From what? Anything outside of one man, one woman in marriage? Okay, that's the limit that God has placed. Remember, where else are you going to get your limits from? Just want to throw that out there. You say, well, that's a lot. Okay, where? Where would you stop? What? That's super clear, right? At least it's not ambiguous. That's pretty clear. No questions. Like, okay, I know what marriage is, and I know how you get married. And then that's, that's clear. There ain't nothing ambiguous about that. You take that away, and then you try to define sexual appropriate behavior by what? Felt safety which is obviously important, 
but that's so ambiguous. I'm telling you, I just want you to see, you know, everybody just, this gets a bad rap. Everybody's kicking Christian sex acts. And I'm just begging you to see how necessary, good, and true it is. And how fooled you have been to believe that intel you're getting from somewhere else is valuable and and, and helpful. Okay? Because where? If you don't use this as the limit, what's your limit? And who decides? And you don't have an answer for that question. You don't. Well, your answer would be different than the person sitting next to you. Your answer would be dependent on your experiences. Your answer would be dependent on your position of power. Your answer would be dependent on whether you're a threat or against the threat. You know? Your answer would be dependent on a lot of things. And it would be subjective. And it would change. So this is God's goal for us. Purity brings clarity. Now, if you view purity as a blessing, and then you're going to have motivation, okay? So the reason some of you, especially single people, not, you're just walking around, you're all moping, you know, like, you know, you're just walking around like this, you know, and you're just sad all the time. You're just frustrated. And you're like, what is this, you know? And it's because you're viewing God's restrictions as a burden that's been placed on your life that you have to carry as opposed to an opportunity of freedom. Be motivated by the fact that purity is the best thing for you. Be motivated by the fact that if you act in purity, you will walk in clarity. Be motivated by the fact that it is in your best interest that God is calling you to this. Don't walk around pouting, acting like the world, like you needed sex to fulfill your life. Walk around victorious like you have Jesus. This is important. The reason you're struggling is because you're pouting. You ever seen anybody make progress by pouting? My kids never do the right thing when they're pouting. They need to stop pouting before they have a mind to do the right thing. You're killing yourself. Come on. Walk in victory. Act like you have something the world doesn't have. How could it be that you have the Holy Spirit and the world doesn't, and you're going to walk around sad as if you're missing something else the world can get? Come on. This is very important for us to say, let's walk in that, walk in that. Be confident. I want to encourage you today. This isn't a rebuke of you struggling to be pure while you're single. I know how hard that is. Everybody knows how hard that is. It's not easy. I'm here to encourage you to say, you have something the world doesn't have. Use it. You know, find your life. May your life be a testimony to the fact that romantic love isn't the pinnacle of life, but God's love is the pinnacle of life. Live to testify to that. And in God's grace, maybe the other things will come as well. But what an opportunity you have to be a testimony to the world that you don't need what the world's got, but you have everything you need in him. Purity brings clarity. Look, whether you swipe left or swipe right, you're not going straight. I want you to understand, <laughs> right? It's like, anybody made much progress doing this? You don't, you don't get up. What does purity do? It makes you walk in a straight line. I'm going to go directly down the road God has called for me to the appointment that God has for me. No left, no right, straight. And you're so busy with all these sexual opportunities. You're going left, you're going right, 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 and you're doing anything but moving forward, and then you wonder why you're so stuck. Purity brings clarity. It helps you walk in a straight line. What a blessing. What a blessing. Be motivated. What a good opportunity you have. And I have. You know married people have to be pure too. Let's just be clear on this. Married people struggle with sexual immorality. Let's be clear on this. There are ways to be sexually immoral within a marriage. Let's be clear on this. Marriage isn't the fix that you need. It's a blessing, but it's not the fix that you need. Here's for my also single people. Remember, the goal of purity in singleness is not marriage, but obedience. You don't act in purity so that you can get married. 
You act in purity to obey Jesus because you love him. And if marriage is the goal for your behavior, then that's not going to work out very well, especially if you don't get married. Or especially if marriage doesn't give you what you thought it would give you. Like you're going to be pure your whole life and then have this crazy experience your whole life while you're married. As if that's going to make up for all your self-restraint. And I want to help you now because I feel like the church has done a disservice, especially for young people, to connect purity to the opportunity for marriage. As if you should act in purity so you can have the best chance to get married. Or as if you can act in purity so you can be really ready to get married. As if you act in purity, then all your dreams will come true when you get married. No, the goal of purity is obedience. Right now, because you love Jesus. That's it. Anything else becomes an idol. You act in purity now, not so that you can get married. And once again, I'm not dissing marriage. I'm married. I love my wife. Being married is amazing. I, I testify to being married. I'm so glad. I love being married. But at the same time, at the same time, marriage isn't a reward for your purity. Come on. God doesn't work like that. Be pure for Christ's sake. Be pure because you want to become more like Jesus. Be pure because it gives you a straight line to walk in and let the Lord lead your life. Now, also in light of this, if the goal is to abstain, okay, if the limit is abstaining from anything outside of one woman, one, one, one man in marriage, then for some of our brothers with strong same, some of our brothers and sisters with strong same-sex attractions, to obey the call to abstain is to pursue a life of singleness unless God changes those desires which sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And if we're going to be mature, what's the word? Mature as a church, then we will come alongside people who are struggling in that way. And we will do our very best to provide the intimate relationships in a healthy way that are necessary for a human being to thrive. This is maturity. This is not to say, ooh, and this is not to say, how could you, or get over it. No, no, no. This is to understand that we all have our temptations and we all have our struggles. And if this is the plight and difficult thing for a brother and sister, then it is our job as a church to provide close, healthy relationships so that person can obey Jesus. And if they struggle to obey Jesus, we should look at ourselves and say, why are we not helping them better? This is maturity. This is important because I want us to be a church of both conviction and compassion. Conviction that the Bible's teaching is absolutely right. And we will never, ever, ever, as long as I'm here, stray away from that. Never. We will never, never, never. We believe what the Bible says and we will hold that with conviction. But then we will also live that out with compassion, knowing how difficult and how hard and the kind of sacrifices some people have to make to be obedient. And some of you have all the conviction in the world and no compassion. You need to grow in sympathy and empathy and understanding. Some of you have all the compassion in the world and no conviction. You have to draw a line somewhere. May we be a church who lives by conviction and with compassion, who stands by the truth and doesn't back down, but is the most loving, helpful group of people ever on this issue who helps people who have been abused in types of ways, who helps people who have different desires and attractions and are navigating what that looks like, a church who really, really gets in the nitty-gritty and who stands with conviction and lives with compassion. 
And that is needed because the world tries to have compassion and they got no conviction. And a lot of Christian people live by conviction. They're not exercising any compassion. And may we be what Jesus was, a friend of sinners. And may we have conviction and live by compassion. Y'all with me on that? That's good. Let's be mature. Let's be healthy. Let's be able to handle difficult situations and difficult circumstances with maturity. Let's be able to kill sin and enjoy the grace of God. Let's be able to call people to obedience, which might mean a life of singleness and sacrifice, and then come alongside them to bless them and provide the community that they need. Let's be mature. This is very important for us because the world is only going to go more crazy with sexuality, and there needs to be a safe haven for people to find healing, hope, freedom, forgiveness, and a new life. And this church will be one of those places by the grace of God. So control, abstain. The next one is remain. Remain. A way to abstain is to remain, to be content where you are with whatever situation you find yourself. Look at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. To transgress is basically to cross a boundary. The root word here is to covet. So out of a covetous, jealous desire... Someone crosses a boundary to take that which doesn't belong to them. And so imagine the world we have, you know, there's boundaries on the world we have. It's like a basketball game. There's boundaries on the court. If you were to go outside of the boundaries, you would turn the ball over. You can no longer play. You got to play according to the rules. To transgress the boundary is to turn the ball over. It's to limit your opportunity. And what I want you to understand here is the Bible is teaching us you got to keep the ball in bounds to play the game according to the rules God has given us. And when you cross a boundary, you are putting yourself and those around you in jeopardy. Now, once again, the power is in the word yes, not no. And so instead of just focusing on what you shouldn't do, right? If you tell a kid, don't cross that line, <laughs> that's all they're going to think about. You know, how close can I get, you know, you know? And this conversation I have with couples all the time, you know, how close can I get and not sin? I'm like a lot farther away than you think. You know, that's the wrong, that's the wrong question. You've already lost. You know, don't be thinking like that. Uh, you say, how close is it? So if I, I don't want to cross a boundary, all I'm thinking about is the boundary. And this is what happens to so many of us. Don't have sex, don't do this, don't do that. Is all I'm thinking about. You say, don't have sex every time I go to youth group, then all youth kid thinks about is sex. And now they're, you know, this is normal. Say, like, okay, the Bible's saying, okay, don't cross the boundary. But the way you do that is to not focus on the boundary, but to focus on where you are. What you and I need to do is to build and practice and cultivate contentment where we are as opposed to trying to find it somewhere else. The way that you don't cross the boundary is to remain where you are, to learn to stay put, to learn to have staying power. And I'm telling you, our culture doesn't have staying power. We don't have attention for We can't focus on anything because we're scrolling Twitter every five seconds. We change jobs every two minutes because we don't like our boss. We move here, we move there. And I'm telling you, remember, I'm always trying to help you think about how you're being discipled by the world. You are becoming a person less consistent because the world is less consistent. So unless you fight against that, you won't have staying power. But what you need to grow as a Christian is to learn to stay put. Stop trying to take shortcuts. Stop trying to wiggle your way out. Learn to stay put. Learn to remain. Learn to cultivate contentment where you are. Fight for it. Practice it. Pray for it. Instead of trying to get out of it. 
Now, obviously, if you're in an unsafe situation, get out of it. Do I need to caveat that? Don't do that. But if you're just in a normal situation, I need to remain where I am. And what you've done is focus on the boundary. And what God wants you to do is focus on the lot he's given you within the boundary. Psalm 16, 4, it says, How good and how beautiful is the inheritance, the lines of my lot. Woo! To say, oh man, if I focus so much on the boundary, I'm going to complain and be discontent. But if I look at the square that I got, then I can find happiness. Enjoy the square that you have. Enjoy the lot that you got. If you have to fight for it. If you have to pray for it, how easily we give up. Come on. How easily we give up to say, oh, it's so hard to enjoy the life I've been given. How easily we give up. Fight for it. The power to not cross the boundary comes from building contentment to remain where you are. And this applies to your whole life, not just your sexual life how much you would grow, oh, how much you would grow if you could learn to stay put. How much you would grow if you could learn to obey even in the pain. How much you would grow if you learned to fight for contentment instead of trying to find the easy way out. How much you would grow. Practice contentment where you are instead of trying to find it somewhere else. Remain, stay put, endure, be faithful, consistent. Now, the Bible provides some additional motivation here that we ought not to dismiss. Like I said, sin is serious and we must kill it. What does he say here in verse 6? Why should I do all of this? Well, because the Lord is an avenger. Better yet, the avenger. Got a lot of avengers in this world, but I want to focus on one. The avenger. The Lord is the avenger, and I told you, as I solemnly warned you. I'm not going to read these references, but I'm going to give them to you. Write them down. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, and Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Give us the same idea, the same truth. It attaches God's punishment and wrath upon the sexually immoral person who does so without repentance. And this is where we take sin seriously. I'm not trying to call you and say it'll all be all right. God says, if you continue to live this way according to your own feelings and your own desires, however you want to do it, the wrath of God is coming on your life. You cannot live how you want and not pay for it. And that's exactly what the world wants you to believe, that there are no consequences for your freedom, but there are. And the Lord is an avenger of those who dismiss his authority and dismiss his wisdom and try to live life their own way. And you ought to fear God. Sin is serious and you must kill it. And this is important because he's writing letters to the church. And he's talking to church people. And he's saying, if you continue in this way, the Lord is coming. Do you not fear God? Sin is serious, and we must join him in killing it. It says here, God has not called us, verse 7, to impurity, for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So basically, our calling is to stay put where we have been assigned. Our calling is to pursue holiness. Now, we are not called to pure impurity, 
It says we are not called to impurity because we are called to freedom. This is important. The reason why you're not called to impurity is because you are called to freedom. Galatians 5.13, you write that reference down. For freedom we must God has called us to freedom. So he's not denying sexual activity to restrict you. He's denying it to free you, right? So you're called to purity because you are called to freedom. This is the teaching of the scriptures. You have been called to this. Not for impurity, I love this. You should notice the words here. Not for impurity, but in holiness. Why did he not say for holiness? Because you are already in holiness. Holiness through faith in Jesus is baked into your existence. Let me tell you something. You, by being sexually pure, will earn no favor with God. You, by being sexually pure, will not increase your righteousness. You are made holy because you have been given holiness by Jesus. So look at me, especially those of you who are struggling and saying, how do I overcome this? And you think it's an impossible leap to go from a person who practices these things to a person who lives in purity. But that's because you're trying to think of becoming someone that you are not. That's where you think, I am not that, and so I have to get from something I am not to something I, something I am to something I am not. But the leap is not from something I am to something I am not. Because you have already been made holy in Jesus. So to pursue sexual purity is to become who you already are. It's not an impossible leap. It's actually a natural progression, or better yet, a supernatural progression in your life is to say, to become holy and pure is to become who I really am. You need to see yourself that way. Stop pouting. Stop seeing yourself like you have no power and become the man and the woman God has called you to be. He has already given you the righteousness of Jesus. He has already died and paid for all of your sins. He has rose again from the dead. And he says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And the devil says, you're powerless, you're powerless, you're powerless. You can never change. This will never get, you know how hard that is. And he's just lying. He's like, you're not, you'll never be that. You'll never be that. You'll never be that. And you should tell him I already am. Thank you very much. Holiness is baked in to your existence because you are now united with Jesus. And you will not earn any more points with God by being sexually pure the rest of your life. You can't be more perfect than Jesus. And he's already given you Jesus. So become who you already are. Walk in victory and power and strength and authority. Don't walk in misery, complaining and pouty. No, 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 no. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. I love this. This is my rule in all the churches. Wow. What a phrase. Lead the life God has assigned and called to you. This is a rule for everyone everywhere. Oh, how, how, how happy you would be if you stop trying to lead the life God has assigned to someone else. How happy you would be if you focused on the lot he has given you instead of the lot he gave your neighbor. How wonderful your life would be if you saw the beautiful things God has inherited to you. Man, how beautiful it is to lead the life God has called you. And it is specific. No one else can lead the life that God has assigned to you. 
What a blessing. You are unique. You're special. Your life counts, and it matters. And no one else can live your life. No one else can have the impact you can have. No one else can do the things you can do. So live the life God has assigned to you. Be blessed and fruitful. Make a difference. Find contentment and peace. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to live. God knows what he's talking about. Amen? Boy, does he know what he's talking about. Come on. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to walk in victory and power. Live the life God has assigned to you. And stop trying to live the life he's assigned to someone else. Now, all of these things are important, and you should now be asking, maybe some of you, wow, this seems super serious. You seem, this is a lot. I mean, the restrictions are serious. The way you're talking is serious. This is all very serious. It's a little bit much. It's a little bit much. And you should ask the question, like we've said, says who? Okay, that's all great. Says who? That should matter. Says who? Says me? No, 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 no. If I say it, you shouldn't listen to it. Look what he says. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, disregards not the pastor, disregards not the church, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. These instructions come from God. You can dismiss me and you can care less about what I say, but you cannot disregard God. These instructions don't come from my mind. Nobody sat down and thought, this is a great way to pursue sexuality. Nobody would come up with these rules if they had their choice. And God comes in and says, well, this is how it ought to be. And this is what is best for you. I want you to see how many times he reiterates this. Verse 1, to please God. Verse 2, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is the will of God. Verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity. Verse 8, disregards not man but God. Verse 9, you yourselves have been taught by God. He couldn't put any more effort into making the point. This is not man-made. This is from God. Says who? Says God. So let's receive it as that. That's why in chapter 2 he says, you receive the word not as it comes from me, but as if it came from God. And if you receive this instruction as something that comes from Nate, it'll do you no good. But if you receive it as something that comes from God himself, then it'll change your life. This comes from God. Now, a shout out to all my young adults, TikTokers, Gen Z, and young millennials that are super mad about purity culture. I want to talk to you for a second. You watch those TikToks and purity cultures destroy people's lives and the, the things that Christians are asking people to do in the name of Jesus to be pure are just ridiculous and they're not giving people an opportunity to lie. I don't know how many of you have seen this. So, you know, this is big. It's a big deal with people who are decommitting from the faith. So they're saying, I'm not a Christian anymore because purity culture sucks and it's ruined my life. Here's what I want you to understand. This command for purity doesn't come from a pastor or a religion, but from God himself. Maybe, just maybe, you did have a pastor or were in a church that exemplified no compassion. It was all conviction and no compassion. You were shamed. You were mistreated. You were misunderstood. Maybe you weren't believed when you brought something up that had happened to you, and you've been destroyed by that. And for that, I honestly say sorry. That should never have happened. It is not okay for a pastor or a church to be so heavy-handed that you cannot see the love of God. And this church will never be like that. But as horrible as that is, the command never came from them. So if you're going to throw away purity because you hate purity culture, then you have to dismiss God himself. 
Do you understand that? You've thrown away all of God's commands because a pastor did you wrong. And I'm so sorry that happened to you, but it didn't come from him. This wasn't his idea. He may have mishandled it, but he didn't give it to you. And so instead of throwing away purity culture, instead of throwing away God's commands, why don't you receive them as he intended and find healing and hope in his name? Do not throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is what an entire generation of TikTokers are doing. I'm seeing it left and right, left and right. And I'm sorry bad things happen in the name of God, and that's awful. And he will bring his vengeance and justice will be done, thank God. But don't throw away God's lifestyle for you because you've been mistreated before. The command didn't come from them or that bad church. It comes from God. So the final one is to enjoy. So control, abstain, remain, and enjoy. This is where we close. This is crucial because ultimately the power to live an obedient life, like I said, comes from saying yes more than no. So the idea of sex and the truth in sex in the Bible is inherently a good thing. In the very first chapter, it says, be fruitful and multiply, which I don't have to explain what that means to everybody, all right? That's what he's talking about. There's a whole book called The Song of Solomon about sex, very in detail, very explicit, hard to preach from, haven't done that yet. So now, right, Ephesians 5 tells us that the union between a man and a woman actually gives us an idea of the intensity of God's love for his church. And so sexual union is a big theological issue throughout the entire Bible. God made sex and he made it for a good purpose, and he's using it for a good purpose. So sex inherently is good. And so the first thing you need to learn when you're going through all this is to enjoy the good gift God has given you when you can do it God's way. This is inherently a good thing. We need to understand it is not to be destroyed. It is to be guarded. But also, I want you, as I've been saying, to enjoy the life God has given you. Enjoy the, enjoy the opportunity he may give you in that environment. Enjoy the life God has given you now. Is it a season of abstinence and that you must abstain? Then enjoy the intimacy God gives you. Be a testimony to other people that sex is not the pinnacle of life, but a relationship with God is. Enjoy the life God has given you. Don't overlook the blessings that are with you and pray for something else to change if that's what you would like. But enjoy the lot, the circle that God has given you. And finally, all of us need to enjoy God's grace. Because this issue affects every single one of us. And there's not a soul in here that has not sinned in a sexual way. Not a soul. And you should feel a great level of conviction and repentance, which is why we need to close with enjoying the grace of God. My favorite thing about Jesus is that he was called a friend of sinners by the religious people. Like, that guy's a friend of sinners. Which I think is wonderful because I'm a sinner and I would like him to be my friend. And so this is good that he's called a friend of sinners. What good news. And you know who some of his, the sinners were he hung out with the most? Prostitutes. Oh, I could give you three, four stories easy right now where Jesus is found befriending, defending, loving, forgiving, and setting free the most sexually promiscuous people around. He came with a great level of conviction and a great level of compassion. And so to those of us, all of us, who have been guilty of this, and to maybe some of you who feel a great deal of shame right now, or a great deal of remorse or regret. Have you messed up? Sure you have. Does God still love you? He absolutely does. Is his blood sufficient to cover the worst of your sins? Absolutely it is. So as Jesus told them, and as he told, tells you and me, he says, you are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for always being there for us, Lord. Thank you that you 
know what is right, I just pray that you would give us faith to believe that you know what is best. Please, Lord, give us faith. Maybe some for the very first time. Make us a holy church. Help us to make progress. I pray that this church would be a safe haven in the midst of a sexually depraved and immoral culture, Lord, that people could find healing, forgiveness, compassion, conviction, that they could find those things here. And may we mature as a congregation, Lord, to be able to handle these serious issues with grace, with wisdom, with truth. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Why don't you stand? Let's respond to the Lord.